0: Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Visient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome a great friend and my favorite public speaker, Mark Waitesha, the CEO of the Children's Hospital Association. Before joining the CHA, Mark was Executive Chairman of Kurt Salman, a preeminent international strategic consulting firm. Mark and I share Big Ten academic roots He holds a master's degree in pharmacology from The Ohio State University, which explains why he always seems so relaxed, and an MBA from Indiana University. Mark, my old friend, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Tom. Thank you. You know, I think back to the first time that you and I met, it it was probably about 20 years ago, and, and we were both... Uh, speaking at a management retreat for Bill Potasnik up in Milwaukee. And I remember vividly listening to your presentation and and catching you in the hallway afterwards and telling you how impressed I was. And and it turns out that over the course of that last 20 years, you were the only strategy consultant who I would recommend uh, to healthcare CEOs, because I, I think you understand academic medicine as well as anyone. If we start with a question, what are some of the similarities, you think, between adult and pediatric tertiary quaternary care, and what are the biggest differences? Well, it's a good question. I appreciate your kind comments, too. It's been great to work with you over the years.
1: The children's hospitals, the the large ones, are big academic centers, and they're virtually the same in a lot of their culture as their adult counterparts. So, for example, if we went to Philadelphia and we took Penn, and CHOP to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. They're both Penn Medicine, Penn Medical School. They're on the same campus, same buildings, comparable people, comparable students. Uh, so you have a lot of the same things. And in some regards, the, um, the uniqueness of academic medicine uh, is similar. So everybody believes they're recreating the next iteration of medicine. Everybody believes, unless it's done here, there's something quite not right about it. So we have a reasonable amount of campus ego in those. Those are all very similar. And we have these expensive missions relative to the science, education. Um, These hospitals do big community service. So those are similar. The differences really are driven almost completely by the patient population. I know that sounds incredibly intuitive, but it is amazing how often that's missed. So the kids' hospitals are full of kids. They have a different payer basis almost completely. Uh, One of the things that's always missed here in D.C. is that there's no Medicare of any materiality in a kid's hospital. And that is the dominant payer dynamic in most of the adult centers. And it also adds uh, a level of profitability, or at least non-loss, that you don't see in pediatrics. Pediatrics is about 45% commercial pay 55% Medicaid, and uh, it just introduces a completely different dynamic. The kids themselves, as we'll talk about more maybe later in some of your questions, have a completely different set of disease challenges. They're really not at all related to adults in terms of either the types of things they deal with or the volumes of them. We've got about 20% of the nation's uh, population are kids, um, so you'd think that they'd be 20% of the demand curve, but they're much lower, more like 5 to 10%. And this is because the adults consume so much care per capita. So you've got a scale difference that's quite remarkable with the big academic centers being two, three times bigger than a kid's hospital on beds, on visits, on any, on any metrics you pick. So you've got those as major, um, I think, differences between the kids' hospitals, but there's a lot of similarities and it makes it possible uh, for somebody like me to kind of move a little bit back and forth between the two
0: groups. Let's stay there for a minute. If you think about the adult tertiary medical center, cancer, heart disease, now uh, neurodegenerative diseases, they all have the same set of service lines that that they think of as their core business, if you will. Um, What is it in children's hospitals? What disease states or what categories of disease are the biggest challenges that the children's hospitals face?
1: You know, Tom, over a year in my careers, most of our adult industry in the United States has focused on uh, what I call diseases of lifestyle, but they're really the outcome of chronic long lives. Um, If we live to be 70, 80, 90 years old, our joints are going to wear out. Our cardiovascular systems uh, get compromised. Our neurologic systems deteriorate. It's not surprising. You drive a car for 90 years, you know, the tires, everything are going to be out of it. And when you look at our adult hospitals, particularly in the more community-based sectors, you see large volumes of uh, disease that are related to chronic lifestyle. And it may be that you eat too much and became diabetic, you've got bad hips, bad knees, you could pick it. But the fact that we look at our adult curve and we always think of cardiac, we think of cancer, we think of neuro, um, these are things heavily driven by chronicity and having lived 50, 60, 70 years. If you flip that on the kid's side, they haven't lived any years at all. So the disease sets that they are dealing with are ones they bring in with them. So prematurity, congenital dis- anomalies, a lot of genetic disease. A lot of disease you see that's not survivable to adulthood. So you don't see it at all in the adult population. The people that have these diseases die before they become very old. Uh, you certainly don't have what I'll call wear and tear like we think of joints as wear and tear. We think of, uh, I know the cardiologists hate this, but you know, you think of plumbing and the flow of fluids and all the dynamics they deal with, with the heart work. You know, it's a completely different ballgame. So the kids have a wide, wide range of challenges they bring in, whereas the adults, I'd argue, after 70, 80 years of living the lifestyle that we live in the West, are probably dealing with a half a dozen, a dozen pathways that fundamentally are the majority of the work. So what that means for the um, treatment is we have a much wider uh, range of diagnostic requirements that is much thinner in scale. So we have plenty of things appearing only a few times. We have very few things appearing like hips appear, where invariably 60, 70% of the population uh, which is tens of millions of people in the Medicare population have this this issue. With kids, it just appears maybe in the hundreds or thousands of times per year, and you've got to find a way to treat that. So there's a deeper diagnostic requirement to cover that wider waterfront, if you will, whereas you don't need a lot of depth in diagnostic to figure out that someone's heart's gotten plugged up. You do need to figure that out, but you don't need uh, four subspecialists to look at that. With a kid, you you probably are looking at that. The other is that when kids are born with some of these problems, they probably have some other problems. It'd be very rare to have a significant prenatal heart problem and not also then be born with some neurologic damage, with some organ system damage in another part, maybe the liver. So you tend to have multiple complicated things happen, often in a premature or small person, two, three pounds. Uh, that can't communicate, can't talk, has no medical record passed. And all that has to be sorted out uh, by the health system. And it's you can imagine, more of a discovery exercise requiring a lot more judgment than an adult who has a long glide path and a track history that you can at least look at and know that, well, Tom, you know, smoked for 30 years. So I'm not surprised at this or that. So the, the medical staffs tend to be wider in expertise and narrower or or less deep in the number of people working in any particular expertise. And that makes a a big difference when you start looking at the the shape of the delivery system.
0: I'm fascinated by that. I hadn't really thought about the breadth of uh, congenital problems and the multi-system nature of of some of that. It takes me to an issue uh, that I, I think is tangential One of the things in adult medicine that I've been troubled by uh, recently is the prevalence of uh, high-risk, low-volume surgical programs that we see around the country. You know as well as I do, there there are published minimum proficiency thresholds for any number of high-risk surgical procedures in the adult world, and we find a troubling persistent prevalence of low-volume surgical programs. I attribute it to the payment system putting pressure on smaller, lower-acuity hospitals to chase revenue in the private sector to make up for the government shortfalls. But for whatever reason, uh, in the adult world, we seem to have uh, more programs than I would be comfortable with doing high-risk procedures. And as I listen to you, it strikes me that The nature of children's hospitals and pediatric subspecialties uh, is that they tend to to be more consolidated than their adult counterparts. Can you help us think about how we could move adult medicine closer to that pediatric model? Yes. You know, it, it is more
1: consolidated in some ways, Tom. But in other ways, it's very similar. The challenge is very similar. When Medicare, principally Medicare, I guess, was put into place, as you know well in the 60s, we started paying for high-acuity, complexity, time-intensive, resource-intensive care. And invariably, as our technology got better and better, we could actually do more and more technical, high-acuity things. And what's possible today, um, 80- and 90-year-olds getting heart surgery In the 1960s, wouldn't have done any of that on anyone who was over 70 years old. And actually, most of the people, even in their 60s, would have been been a mortal outcome. So what we have is a payment model that pays us to remediate very complex problems, and it pays us very well to do that. And we don't pay much at all for preventative or primary or cognitive kind of problems, it's really interesting, isn't it, that 50 or 60 years have gone by and fundamentally that relativity has not changed. Uh, that's why we have heart surgeons making seven figures and general family physicians making you know, a tenth of what they make. And it's not to denigrate the miracle of heart surgeons. They're great. It just is to illustrate a little bit that really not a lot has changed on the basic motivation that you've alluded to. And it extends into the hospitals exactly the same as the physicians. The higher tech, high acuity places, whether they're children's or whether they're adults, get paid the most per unit of work. And everybody who's doing something that doesn't involve high technology deployment generally uh, can earn less. And that's also payer agnostic, as you know. Commercial payers, Medicare payers, Medicaid payers, they all pay more for the high intensity and they all pay less for the low intensity. So as long as we're paying on intensity, everybody has a natural business motive to build high intensity services. And that motive is then connected to high income careers. So for example, in pediatrics, you know we have lots of new people wanting to be radiologists, wanting to be surgeons, wanting to be what I would call procedure-based ologists gastroenterology, cardiology, uh, neurosurgery. And we have fewer people really signing on to be what I'm going to call less technically intensive careers, general pediatrics, general family medicine, behavioral health. You look at mental health. uh, You look at uh, any of the people involved in neurology, adolescent psychiatry. It's not a lot of high tech there. This is a uh, person-to-person, relationship-driven set of caring. It just doesn't involve big stents, big radiology, big surgery. So that means fundamentally your career prospects of what you're going to earn as a doctor means what your hospital looks like relative to its pro forma into the future becomes acuity driven. And so we have too many people in the United States, both in pediatrics and in adults, training to be in those more remunerative procedure-based careers and we have too few people interested in a career track in less remunerative careers. Last I checked, the tuition was the same. The number of years were the same. And you know we think uh, you know, those of us who've been in this field for 30 or 40 years, we think we've got all this proprietary wisdom. And I talked to a 23-year-old who looked up and said, I have to work 40 years. I've gotta make X income to make all this work. Why would I enter a cognitive discipline? So there you have it. You know, I think that the market votes with its feet. So Tom, the long answer to your question is that we do have more consolidation in kids because the market is thinner, and we have states like a Wyoming or a Montana uh, where you'll have fewer than a million people, or if you have a million, it's not much more, and fundamentally, you don't have enough kids to put together a pediatric heart program of any particular scale. So it winds up being more regional. Having said that, we have lots of subscale surgical programs in pediatrics, plenty of them. Uh, We don't have enough cases in peds to get critical mass at all the sites that we offer it, same as adults. It's less prevalent because there's only 76 million kids and we got, what, 330 plus million total people But what really drives it is that utilization factor in Medicare, where the average Medicare person will consume, you know, four or five times the resources of a kid. So when we talk about kids being one in five, that's on headcount. If we looked at demand, it's like one in 10. And so when you look at uh, this problem you're raising, it's only 10% as visible as the adult problem. And the other thing, Tom, I would uh, opine on is we have enough adult demand in all 50 states to have tertiary services in all 50 states. We don't have enough pediatric demand to do the same. Probably only have tertiary services in maybe three quarters of the states. And I would suggest a good chunk of some of those programs are offered at too low of a volume. But we have, as you know, a lot of ologists being trained and the hospitals have to put up high-intensity services to make the mission work. That is where all the glam is. It is where the U.S. News and World Report focuses in on. Uh, It's who makes the cover of Time magazine. They're neurosurgeons and heart surgeons. You don't see many Marcus Welbys, you know, on the cover uh, these days. I think people are enamored with the tech. So that's what's going on. I'm not sure it's a lot better issue. It's a less visible issue. Uh, But I think we all have the same problem everywhere, which is, it's an open, competitive system. And if you want to be a hospital with a reasonable EBITDA, you've got to sort out a way to get some of these services in your hospital, whether you're kid or adult.
0: That's an enlightening answer. I would have intuitively guessed that the problem was a little bit more um, domiciled on the adult side. It's interesting and less than great news to, to learn that we're struggling with it on both sides. Let me throw a curve at you. We were chatting in advance about some of the things that we might want to talk about, and I listened earlier to something that you were saying, and an idea kind of crept into my head, and you know me, I'm uh, not much for stopping it before it comes out of my mouth. So let me ask you a question that you probably haven't been um, thinking about too much in advance, but you're great at this. You were talking earlier about the fact that, unfortunately, much of what uh, ails the kids uh, turns out not to be survivable. And that caused me to think uh, in a lurch about end-of-life decisions and difficult conversations. They're very difficult with an 80-year-old. They're impossibly difficult with a kid. Talk to me a little bit about either the parallels or the differences in uh, in having those kind of um, horribly difficult conversations around end-of-life care that we struggle with so much in the adult world, um, I can't can't even imagine it in the pediatric world. Right. No, it's a great question. Actually, I've thought
1: about it a reasonable amount. I remember you did a program and unfortunately I had to miss with Vizian about end-of-life care, and I do think this is one of the real questions of our time, simply because the amount of resource that we spend as a society, and it doesn't matter if you're here in Europe or a similar system to us, Australia, Canada, but the amount we spend on the last, let's call it a few months of life, whether you're an infant or an adult, are just a huge disproportionate share of the budget. Now, that's part of our social norm and our social compact with each other, which is life's important, we're going to protect it. It also, however, uh, takes away from dealing with social determinants, dealing with wellness, dealing with well-being. We consume as many or probably more resources on end-of-life than we do probably at, I would call, uh, living more thriving lives. So for kids, there's some distinct differences from adults. And one of the most intuitive, and a lot of these, Tom, I, I will share with you, I think you've always asked what I was surprised about. I was surprised about how often simple, intuitive answers are not what people have been thinking about. And this is one of the first of them. You or I can uh, deal with an end of life situation as adults because we have legal agency to do that. Now our children or family may feel we're incompetent and maybe even try to you know, take that privilege from us. Kids are all minors by definition. None of them has legal agency to deal with this question regarding their own life. So I think that we have a complete um, inversion of the discussion because for a kid, their family or their guardian holds the decision authority for this. And there is no way around that. It's not an optional thing. You're not a legal steward of yourself in this country, at least. And these decisions have to be made by other people. Those other people are usually your parents and family, and they are highly emotional about the decision, um, understandably, but that creates a different environment. And that's not to say that families aren't involved in end-of-life for their parents or their grandparents, but it's a different involvement, and there is an agency by the patient. The second thing that I think is another intuitive one that just pops out is an end-of-life discussion for me or you as an 80-year-old. I hope we get there. You know, we've lived 80 years. We have some philosophy on our life. We've had fun. We've traveled. Or we haven't had any fun, and we haven't traveled. But whatever it is, we have a context for looking back and being thankful or being hateful about whatever it is we had, but we had something. We had something that we lived. And a three-year-old who can barely talk can't even articulate what their life has been. And a 10-year-old or an 8-year-old dying of cancer uh, has probably been in the hospital their whole life, or a lot of it. I mean, the kids who die young have usually had a lifelong challenge. And that means they have not had a great quality of life, and they maybe never even had a year to do what we would call normal things, like go to school, or have friends, or go out and do something with your friends where you have some independence. So what adds to the fact that you've got your family making these decisions for you is the fact that you've really not lived. You've not had an opportunity to do much or anything. And I think the smaller the child, the more difficult this becomes. You get a one-year-old and you know they can't talk, they're with parents, they're in that, you know, emotional, critical period of time, and uh, they're going to disappear. They're not going to make it. And I think it makes the discussion just extraordinarily difficult. For the hospitals and health systems, these end-of-life discussions, as you know, are difficult for adults and for kids. Just go back to the Jack Kevorkian time, and, you know, it was, uh, there's always a social stigma about this. For the kids, it's an impossibility, right? It's a non-win impossibility for the doctors and for the hospitals. To recommend that it's not a good quality of life for a one-year-old to continue, it's got to be one of the most difficult statements you could make. It's all negative. It's all negative from a community standpoint, from a press standpoint, from a branding standpoint. And often the case, Tom, it's the opposite. The families become uh, advocates for extending the life of their kids, even if they are functionally almost not alive. And we've had multiple examples of this over the last few years. And it's been enabled by crowdsourcing and raising dollars to advocate for keeping your kid on life support, for keeping your kid alive, even if, in fact, they've not got any prospect of a life. So I do think that this is a tough topic. We've not had any real traction trying to broach this in the United States. I would say in the Netherlands, where they have some uh, social comfort discussing end of life, they've not been able to do this in kids. They've got to it with adults, Belgium, similarly, but getting there with kids has proven to be incredibly difficult. And I think to even open the discussion invites a whole bunch of criticism. And I think. Uh, non-listening by the audience we have. I don't think it's that different, frankly, than abortions or racism or other charged topics of the time. There are so many people diametrically opposed, and they have such visceral negative reactions to the whole topic, that almost nothing you say is going to work. It's all going to trigger what people want to feel. So this is one of those topics that's just going to stay out there with us. I'll just close on the comment by saying that our technology enables more of this situation. We can save almost anybody in the pediatric world, even if you're born a pound, even less than a pound. There are gonna be problems for your health profile for life but we can save a lot of people, adults and kids alike, veterans. What we can't do is make them what they were or what they could be. And so they have a shorter life that just raises this issue more often. And it's one I believe you were very wise to have Vizia engage on this on the adult land. I think socially we're going to have to engage on this more beyond just hospice care and sort out what it means and and how it fits into our cost contract and our healthcare contract between ourselves and the society we live in. Maybe more than you wanted. No, not a bit. In (laughs) fact, I
0: was just about to thank you for taking that on. Uh, It's a very difficult conversation. I thought it was one that folks should hear your thoughts about and, and you handled it elegantly. Let's give you a chance to be more optimistic uh, for just a few minutes here. And it's in a kind of a counterintuitive fashion. You mentioned social determinants in the context of the resources that get consumed in end of life, not just for kids, but for adults as well. There's this implicit, if not explicit, trade-off between the resources being used in that fashion versus opportunities to deal with some of what I would refer to as the manifestations of social determinants of health. As soon as you say social determinants of health, it gets people feeling lousy. I want to turn it upside down and ask you, because I think kids in the kids' world, uh, health disparities and social determinants are probably at least as big an issue, if not a bigger issue, than in adult medicine. But rather than thinking about it in the negative, let me flip it around and ask you, what opportunities do you think we have to do better in the management of the medical manifestations of social determinants, not the underlying social problems of poverty and homelessness and, poor education and all of that, not trying to figure a way for healthcare to to solve those problems. But how can we do a better job managing the medical manifestations of those determinants? No,
1: that's a great question. Actually, it is a a prelude to a positive question. I will tell you there's a a measure of uh, emotional trauma or social determinant trauma in these uh, so-called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And these were studies done in adults retrospectively with Kaiser records where we looked at people's early development and then looked 20 years later at how they thrive or not as adults. So a series of these adverse childhood experiences were identified and they're kind of negative, I think, to use one of your words, Tom, on this. Or, you know, if you've uh, had drug abusing parents, if you've witnessed violent crime or had Violent crime inflicted on you, all of these things that occur in children are then correlated to very poor outcomes in adult health, poor mental health outcomes, poor physical health outcomes. So we know these ACEs or adverse experiences are a huge driver of lifelong health thriving. So What we were interested in, and there was this really brilliant piece of work done by uh, Dr. Christina Bethel up at Johns Hopkins on turning that question, same as you turned it for me, which is, well, then, are there positive experiences, things that actually would fortify your emotional profile, your physical profile as a child, and that would lead you to a more robust uh, future as an adult? And so this is fairly recent uh, research over the last year or two, but it correlates to what we have known, which is there for decades are things we know that are conducive to better health in the social determinant realm, and there are things that we can proactively do to give people better opportunities to thrive as an adult, not to mention thriving as a child. You know, there's often pretty simple things. I think social isolation, not having friends, not being able to feel secure either in where you live or in your family or friends unit or in your schools, these things are related uh, to adverse childhood experiences and it allows us to say, well, how do we build positive experiences? What are the things we can do that enable kids to thrive? I'll give you an example We often point to poor poverty. We point to poor neighborhoods, insecure, unsafe environments, uh, violence. And we say, gee, we've got difficult kids coming out of those environments, understandably. And the only way we can solve that is to solve poverty or to lift the entire strata of the country up into some kind of a better funded well uh, environment. And while that's a good goal, it's hard social policy. Um, I think we can find neighborhoods in tough areas with fairly thriving children. And where we find them, they have a community around them. They have relationships. They have people who see them and they have a way to fit in to their schools and to their community. And so there's things we can learn that we can't maybe solve poverty overnight, but we can do a lot on the positive experiences side to give kids a buffer or a hedge against the negative impact of all of these uh, challenges. And I'd also flip it and say, if you look at a community like Palo Alto, where we have a very um, remarkable adolescent suicide rate, you've got a community that is well-funded, excellent education, safe from a physical standpoint, high income households, highly educated kids, and they're taking their lives. So there's something else operating here beyond what we would think of as the classic social determinants, kind of food shelter clothing. We have plenty of America's youth who are very well supported in Maslow's hierarchy, who in fact have despaired, don't want to be here And in Michigan, we just had adolescent teen suicide become the highest cause of death in young people, which is an astonishing comment. And they're not all the poor kids who fundamentally are living in the tough neighborhoods. So we've learned a lot, I think, Tom, about your question. And the hope of this is that we can think of positive childhood experiences and, frankly, for adults, positive adult experiences. A lot of them are having relationships with other people and a feeling of belonging, and trying to sort through what our social policy is and our health system policy to enable and nurture those conditions where we can't always create, for example, a gun-free environment, or we can't always create a drug-free environment. There's other things we can do which help, and that ought to give us a huge, huge incentive and motivation to be looking after those positive experiences, sorting through how we move those forward.
0: Thanks for taking time with that. I would really love to shift gears a little bit and spend some time talking about some of our latest research. But in order to do that, I think we would need to come back for another get together. Would you be willing to do that to give us a chance to talk about some macroeconomic conundrums that we're facing?
1: Always available for more, Tom. Just uh, let me know what you need.
0: I appreciate that. But, you know, before we go, I understand from a give and take that you and I shared recently that you and Paul Newman share an affinity for fast cars and the 24 hours of Le Mans. Can you share a story or two about that?
1: Well, I can, and I will preface all this by saying that now all of a sudden I'm hearing that Formula One and the 24 Hours of Le Mans are feeling they're being unfair and unkind to the planet and the ecosystem, and so now I'm wondering whether I'm just an anachronism of carbon <laughs> footprint, you know, when I think of these things. I uh, had an opportunity to be at a race at Road Atlanta, and Paul Newman shows up in a limousine and, of course, a uh, very accomplished racer and had a car, and Road Atlanta was running a 10-hour endurance race. And so he was there. And I would say um, it wasn't one of his better days. He put his car into the wall on like his third lap. He was unharmed, got in his limousine and drove away. That's probably the extent (laughs) of my racing career right there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was born in Detroit. Uh, I was a car family. All my family worked at In those days, places like Fords, they called it by the possessive name, Dodges, uh, which is Dodge Motor Company. You know, I think we grew up in a car culture, and I grew up loving cars. And I drove them around. I learned to race cars. I mean, I never really was anything in any of that. But I like cars, and I've got them. And now the only thing I have to deal with is my 19-year-old daughter staring at me, wondering, like, why am I such a carbon emitter? And why don't I get rid of those things and get an electric vehicle? So who knows what the future will be? But, uh, but yes, I appreciate your, your remembering that.
0: Well, we'll pick up this conversation again our next time. Mark will join me and I hope you'll be with us too. Thanks for listening. We hope you find these conversations to be thought provoking and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.